listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're listening in on a conversation Tom recently had with David Michael Slater. David is a teacher at Pine Middle School in Reno, Nevada, and is also the author of over a dozen children's books. He's been writing and teaching for over 20 years. David believes that having another passion beyond the classroom is helpful for teachers. In his first nonfiction book, Slater enumerates many of the bad, obsolete, and corrupted ideas that have become part of the basic operating system in American elementary and secondary education. The book is called We're Doing It Wrong, 25 Ideas in Education That Just Don't Work and How to Fix Them. In pithy short chapters, Slater exposes some bad assumptions and makes the case for how good ideas have gone bad. Listen in as David speaks to Tom. David Michael Slater, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Tom. David, did you go to high school in the Pacific Northwest? No, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I went to Taylor Allardyce High School. Where is that? Um, Squirrel Hill. No kidding. Um, I I love Pittsburgh. have lots of fond memories of living there. How did you make it to college in the Northwest? Well, I, I guess I crept my way across the country. I went to undergrad at the University of Michigan. Um, go, and go blue. I grew go, up in Ann Arbor. Oh, boy, small world. Um, and then, to, long story short, I met my wife uh, on semester abroad our junior years, and she tried. She was um, she was at Yale and tried Pittsburgh, didn't love it. So I, I thought I'd try Portland, where she grew up. And after doing a master's in English at Carnegie Mellon, I went and did my master's in teaching at Lewis and Clark and, and fell in love with the whole area. What would you say Lewis and Clark is really good at? Um, it was mixed. Um, I had some wonderful professors like Greg Smith. Um, it, it was really good at starting meaningful conversations. Um, I'm still dear friends with a couple of the people I went through that program with. Um, they placed us in some good internships, multiple sites, which I think is important, or multiple levels. Um, but, uh, you know, I think most teachers will tell you that they really learned when they when they actually got out of school and into the classroom. Yeah, shout, shout out to Greg Smith, um, really one of this country's leading um, experts on and advocates for place-based education. Uh, Greg and I are both advisors for Teton Science Schools, and uh, G- Greg um, is has been helpful in a, a new book that we're writing on place-based education for uh, for ASCD. So he's a, a wonderful resource. He was definitely my most memorable professor, and we've and we've stayed in touch, which I think goes to show just how much he cares and how accessible he is, and just a thought-provoking teacher. So you taught in uh, Beaverton there in the Portland area for, what was it, 16 or 17 years? Yes, 16 years, 13 in a um, middle school uh, in Aloha, actually, um, borderline to um, Beaverton. And then I spent three years at Health Science High School, um, which was an interesting experience. That's one of their, what they call option schools. And it's a expeditionary learning school Though I wasn't exactly in that, that program. I was doing, um, they do something amazing there that I wish I I saw in other places. They teach um, dual credit classes, which I know isn't that uncommon, but but they teach them actually in the high schools. 
So I was right. there to, to teach uh, writing 121 and 122. And it made such a difference because in that, that particular school was recruiting kids that were not successful in the um, comprehensive high schools. And so they were kids, low, low socioeconomic status and um, not likely to foresee themselves as future college students and to actually deliver college credit to them in there was in some cases really life altering. And it, it was in uh, Beaverton that you really started your writing career? Yeah, actually, it was pretty much simultaneous to um, starting as a teacher. I did a little bit of writing before that. Um, I wrote a play and, and I wrote a little bit on my junior year abroad, but it pretty much runs right parallel to my writing career. Uh, why? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that is just a question that uh, in some ways I don't examine. I just need to do it. Um, and I, I don't know. I guess it's a calling. I've written for all different levels, mostly fiction, um, from picture books to middle grade to um, novels for adults and teens. And it's just something I have to do. But reflecting back on my career, um, I think having another passion is, is really dramatically helpful for teachers um, in terms of not, not getting burned out. How and when do you write? Uh, I do not have a, I do not have a, an organized system, except Sundays I do write with a colleague, another writer. Um, but mostly I, I just take whatever time I can get when I can find it. You'd think that the summers would be um, a, a great time. And, and now that my son is older, it is starting to turn out that way. But mostly I just grab time where I can. And I, when I speak to movie writers, they have a hard time believing that even 15 or 20 minutes uh, here and there really adds up to um, eventually a manuscript. Do you write by hand or online? Uh, I'm only typing. I think I have one single story I once wrote on paper, but um, can't do that anymore. Got to type. Um, I, I'd love to, you, you've written um, an interesting assortment of books, right? Both um, fiction and nonfiction, an ed policy book that you wrote called, we're doing it wrong, 25 ideas in education that just don't work and how to fix them. What was the background to that book? This is my latest book and my first venture into nonfiction. It's funny, it started by, I wrote a similar, not similar on topic, but a similarly formatted book of short ideas on a nonfiction topic. And I was doing it, um, I had no qualification in it. But I was doing it to prepare, I thought, for a novel. A character would have written that book. And when I was done with it, I thought, I, I, I really maybe should try that with something I know about. So I started just slapping down um, the various ideas um, for this book. And I have to say that I at first didn't think there was a need for it because a lot of these ideas are ideas that many of my colleagues have shared uh, over the years. So I wasn't sure there was a need. Um, but when I started sharing it with colleagues at first, they all um, encouraged me, uh, were very excited about it. In fact, uh, not because that these were new ideas to them, but because they were so grateful to see them actually on paper um, from, the, from their perspective. These are, this is written to be a sort of a, an attempt to give teachers a voice. I'm less concerned that my ideas are heard. Um, I'd be happier if uh, this book was read by administrators and policymakers and lawmakers, uh, and their main reaction was we maybe should talk to teachers more. Let's uh, 
dive in and spend uh, two minutes on uh, a handful of these topics. You sure. lead off with a big one. Uh, chapter one, old school, age-based education. Why is that a problem? I think um, internal to education, to me, that might be the biggest problem. Um, it, uh, it just doesn't make sense to force kids to to walk through their education at their age level. I actually cannot conceive of a single justification for it, other than that's the way we've always done it. And maybe it made sense in, a, in sort of industrial factory model of efficiency. Um, but it creates endless problems. Kids are disengaged when they're bored. Uh, kids are disengaged when they're not allowed to progress at their pace. Uh, kids are uh, humiliated on the rare times they're told they can't move up a grade. Or if they if they are held back, they don't succeed. It's to me, it's just a mess in all directions. Um, with like I said, no good reason for it. And one one that's very closely aligned with it is chapter two, uh, sameness. Yeah, is it a problem? I, I mean, I guess another reason I wrote, the, wrote this book is to explain why there's uh, such a growing teacher crisis. I think well enough that even the average person knows that there's a crisis in terms of um, not being able to find teachers and teachers leaving the, the um, leaving the career. And uh, of course, everyone uh, immediately thinks of salaries and the salaries are unacceptable um, and a problem, but I don't think they're actually the main reason why teachers are, are losing um, interest in this field and why teacher enrollment in teacher schools are dropping and retirements are increasing. Um, to me, the, the, to get to the point here, the, the main problem is the uh, deprofessionalization of the job, um, and that's reflected in many ways. But in, in one of them is, is, is our obsession with everybody doing exactly the same thing with the same materials. Sometimes, believe it or not, um, for your listeners who aren't familiar, sometimes teachers are, are literally, literally reading scripts, and uh, it doesn't matter who's in the room, um, they need to follow it uh, word for word. And there's you know, people enter this field, they don't, they don't, they didn't get into it to be a robot. And I've actually had met a few teachers who love it. And um, to be frank, they're not the kind of people you want teaching your kids. You poke at some uh, popular notions. Um, in, in chapter six, it's titled Sage on the Stage versus Guide on the Side, Student-Centered Education. So is this a, a takedown of the the new focus on on um, student-centered learning? Not really. It's for me. It's more of a takedown of it's it's in my in my observation. And this is actually the heart of a second book I'm writing, which is not necessarily education related. But my observation is that there is no good idea uh, that is not eventually ruined in, in the public. <laughs> right. right. You know, our tendency to oversimplify answers. And to, to decide if something works somewhere, it has to work everywhere and in all circumstances. So, no, I mean, I think student-centered education is absolutely um, a positive thing. And in, in, in a, a teaching and gifted and talented magnet school inside of a regular education, larger middle, middle school, and that's the heart of everything we do. Um, but what's disturbing me is, is that it seems to be a requirement in uh, teachers who just even elect for <laughs> literally 15 minutes or a period to do something that doesn't look student-centered, like maybe an actual lecture. Um, these people, some of whom are just absolutely brilliant, and, will, and there's no student-centered activity that will 
be superior to the, to the lecture they could give on a certain topic, subject. Um, these people are also being forced out of, out of the field because they're told right. that uh, they, can't, they can't teach that way anymore. Related is chapter seven, uh, student as client. What, what's wrong with that metaphor? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, the, to continue on, the reason teachers are leaving the field um, is obviously, um, the, the, I, I would say it's fair to call it a crisis in terms of the controlling the, your own classroom. Um, the behavior of students, teachers basically feel powerless um, to do it. I, mean, um, I, I don't want to oversimplify and say that they need to be um, autocrats in their classroom. That's a mistake. But a lot of teachers feel that they don't get support from parents or administration um, because the because the client is always right is is the um, is the the guiding mantra, and I guess that may have started in the in my observation anyways that it started with colleges that, that have to compete with each other, you know, so they can charge seventy thousand um, dollars, and and if the, if you're competing for a client who's going to pay you that much money, you're going to cater to them in every way conceivable. And that whole idea somehow seems to have um, leaked its way down into the K-12 system, um, along with, the, you know, couple that to the general disrespect of teachers. And it's just an environment that um, there has to be a correction, I think, before we're going to start drawing people back into the classroom. Chapters uh, 13 and 14 talk about parents in the sort of opposite extremes. So on one side, uh, chapter 13 is on helicopter parents. <laughs> you must have uh, a bunch of great stories on that front. Um, yeah, I mean, there tends to be more, more of that type when you're in a, in a um, highly academic program because the upside right. of that, you know, we have parents who are concerned uh, literally every day. And, and for, for the most part, that, that's a blessing. Um, but it does seem, at least across society, that we have we we have a um, a generation of of parents that are overly involved, um, that micromanage their their kids' decisions, um, that are constantly criticizing and complaining about the teachers uh, that actually do the work for the kid. Uh, it's a problem. I, I mean, if this were the crisis of education, I think that would be cause for celebration. It's nowhere near the top of the list. Um, no. It's, but it's significant, especially when you hear these stories of parents actually going into their college, their their college age child's um, classrooms, or, or to to uh, to complain to their professors and even graduate school. I, I just read recently. Uh, I could go off on that. I'm, but let's let's do the opposite, which is a bigger problem. Um, uh, chapter fourteen is about absent parents. Uh, Chapter's called Going It Alone. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it does feel that schools are going it alone, in my opinion. You know, in some ways, I feel like every other chapter, if I can combine this with, the, with chapter 15, which is the opportunity gap, poverty, all these discussions, every other chapter is, is just a, um, is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, because poverty is such, it, it it is the issue of our time, in my opinion. It is the equity issue. It is the education issue. And the reason why it's despairing is because, you know, the, the, the real fix, schools are absolutely fundamental um, component to, to fixing income inequality. But the real fix is, is outside of its realm. So 
until kids can actually come to school, um, having had support from their parents, having had early childhood learning experience, having some basic literacy, um, it, it is, it, it's a very, very difficult job that we're setting, setting for ourselves. Yeah. We've, we've talked about, um, the guidance gap and, I, I worry, uh, we wrote a book called Smart Parents a couple of years ago where we talked about this guidance gap. And, and as the learning opportunities get better and better, the kids that have somebody that's looking out for them at home and at school, you know, helping them curate their, their own journey, uh, just have an extraordinary advantage. So I, I'm afraid this absent parent and, and, uh, the price of poverty uh, are really being exacerbated. So uh, I appreciate yeah, those chapters. Thank you. Um, yeah, guidance gap. I hadn't heard that phrase before, and I think that's um, it's apt. And unfortunately, I, I don't know if we're addressing it properly. I, I was stunned to hear the other day or, or read or somewhere um, I mean, this is what we all want for our kids, right? To have somebody guiding them and, as you say, help curating their education. Uh, I read somebody attacking parents that do that um, as, you know, perpetuating inequality, um, which seems to me a backwards way to approach this problem. Yeah. All right. One that you and I both feel really strongly about, Chapter 20, A Blank Slate, The Writing Crisis. Would you please go off on this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, absolutely. Uh, uh, students, uh, colleges are telling us every single year, the students that we send them cannot write. And like I say in that chapter, I don't mean cannot write well, cannot write to a basic level of proficiency for college expectations every year. And it's getting worse and worse. And to me, it's pretty darn obvious why um, I look around everywhere and I don't see anyone um, teaching writing. And it's not because English teachers um, don't want to teach writing. It's because the way we have structured our schools really doesn't allow it. Um, there used to be English class separate from writing classes in many places. So that was a good idea. Uh, those were combined and often the teacher has the same amount of time. Many schools have also thrown social studies into that bag. Um, so writing falls off the plate. Uh, then you load in 35, 40, kids and a student, give a teacher five or six classes, and who thinks that they're going to have the time to properly teach writing to 150, 200 students? So teachers um, try, I guess, they teach by assigning only paragraphs, or they let the students read each other's papers, or they have them write a paper that they don't even read, the teachers, I mean. Um, so it's really an absurd situation, which to me, um, has an, in this case, a fairly obvious cause. We're not teaching writing. Yeah, I I can't avoid commenting on this one. You know, I spend all of my time thinking about the future and what kids should be get, getting ready for. And there are a few of my progressive project-based friends that would be happy to encourage kids to express themselves any way that they want. And, and if that's not writing, if they want to produce a video, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess that I think that's a big problem and think that writing is so um, linked to critical thinking. Uh, I I guess I don't think we actually understand what we think about something until we've attempted to write it down. 
And I think there's something uniquely important about the written expression that I'm not okay with a student just uh, uh, developing a poster instead of uh, writing. I, I assume you'd agree with that. I couldn't agree more. And I think this is another example of um, it, it maybe even in more than one way of good ideas being taken too far. Um, and the good idea being that if, if the content is all you're asking for, then why not let a kid um, demonstrate it in a poster? Um, but that's not the case with writing. You're actually trying to teach not just the content, but the actual mode in which it's conveyed. And I think we also um, noticed, I don't know, a couple decades ago, um, sort of an over-dependence on teaching the formula of a five-paragraph essay. And, and what I've noticed is that the, to fix that problem, they simply dispatched with all forms of actual, um, you know, traditional forms of shaping different types of writing. So what we do in my school, um, and I really just can't advocate this for anyone else that's not willing to, to put in the uh, unpaid time, um, is we teach uh, over three years, nine different specific types of essays, um, you know, compare and contrast, classification and division, argument, et cetera. And the, so the kids basically write one a quarter um, and we don't tell them what to write about. So that's where we personalize it. They can write, uh, we don't care. Uh, so we get insignificant things like a compare and contrast of boy bands and we get deadly serious things like um, essays on, well, for example, a student wrote a beautiful reflection on her, uh, a cause and effect essay on her grandfather's passing um, with Alzheimer's. So um, it's, it's, it's amazing. So all we say is demonstrate that you could write these and find your, find your topic and find your voice. And, and at the same time, we teach them to write um, on-demand um, literary analysis essays when we read novels. Anyway, the problem is, so it's easy to say the problem is that we also have them do multiple drafts. We give them personalized feedback on each draft or, or on two of the drafts, the one for the teacher and then one for on their final draft. And, and it takes several weekends of my quarters every single quarter. So that's the way I think it needs to be done. But um, how do we ask all teachers just to volunteer to do that? It seems that now, now that, we're almost all connected and a lot of schools are one-to-one -one, uh, that that should facilitate more and better writing. I'm not sure that we're seeing that. Yeah. Um, I don't, I just don't think from the English teacher's perspective that they're seeing a, a way to get it done. Um, that doesn't just um, yep. make undue demand. Yeah, I, it really does seem to require a faculty-wide commitment to good writing, right? Writing every day across the curriculum. Uh, I think kids need to be writing 500 words a day, and that, but that can't be the English teacher's job. Yeah, uh, I mean, I agree that that's also um, part of the solution. And that's also a difficult one because many teachers across the curriculum are not comfortable um, teaching writing or at least assessing writing. Um, yeah, that's true. I I do think this is a place where um, automated writing feedback systems um, have and will increasingly play a role. If, if they're still a little bit clunky to to use, but 
I think they'll soon be fully incorporated into uh, just the the docs environment that we all write in today um, into the the basic word processing tools that we uh, that we use. And when we can assume that students are getting good structured writing feedback from automated tools, that that may encourage more writing across the curriculum? Well, my fear is that instead what's going to happen is that you'll just eliminate um, the teacher's actual teaching of writing and just um, turn to those. Uh, I mean, well, how is that not going to happen with the with the budget? Yeah. No, we, we both know about unintended consequences, right? We both write about that. The potential is for automated writing feedback systems is to sort of allow teachers to spend their time on the more important aspects of feedback. Um, but your concerns are clearly warranted, right? Yeah, I mean, personally, if my students could run their rough drafts and, you know, get, get that lower level feedback before it gets to yeah. me, that, that is the ideal scenario. But right. like you said, um, I worry that that will not be the actual final outcome. Anything else in the those last chapters that you go off on that you want to make sure that we cover? Advertising, uh, start times, homework. Take your Rick. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I I'll just maybe share some of the other topics in case your readers are interested. Um, let's see. We didn't talk too much. We didn't talk really about professional development, which is a disastrous waste of money in most cases, unfortunately, or class size. Let's talk about that one for a minute. All right. Um, that's a good one to end up on. Because I think that, um, again, the average, I wrote this book for different audiences. And so far, I'm, I'm gratified to hear that it's accessible to all of them. And one of them is the just obviously teachers, um, obviously policymakers or lawmakers. But I also wanted someone who's just a, a regular citizen who's concerned with education, who knows a little bit about it, but probably just enough to know that everything is uh, in dire straits or, you know, there are crises of different kinds, but they don't actually know what the problem is. They maybe hear the sound bites and the propaganda that it's the teacher's fault all the time. And then they probably know that there's a constant fight about class size. And to me, it is the silliest of all issues, um, at least silly in terms of the way it's argued. Um, there are studies that show that class size will not affect your probably standardized test scores. And there are studies that show it does. And to me, they're irrelevant. And what I want people to understand, especially those in power, um, is what's relevant is that you're going to burn the teacher out. Um, you're going to have a teacher who can deliver you good results with 40 kids in a room for a couple of years, but then that teacher's gone. And I've never seen any study that measures that effect of large classes. Uh, what's next for you, David? What's your next book on? Uh, I briefly mentioned, uh, it's, I didn't tell you what it's called. It's called Wingnuts. Um, 30, well, right now it's 32 Good Social Ideas Ruined. And I talk about um, 32 ideas that I think there's social ideas, current, um, uh, and I explained that there's a core, core good idea in there. Um, but what I call wingnuts, my theory is um, 
that the, the most ardent supporters of good ideas will eventually drag it to ruin. And so I give an example um, in each of those, I, each, each of these 32 ideas, I give, uh, explain what the core reason that it's uh, important and then explain the types of wingnuts um, that drag it too far. And really that book is sort of a plea um, to return to like some, some rational, <laughs> calm, um, civil discourse. Uh, that is uh, much needed in our time. David, we didn't, uh, let, let's um, finish just by t- talking about your current assignment in Washoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, um, tell us what you're teaching and what you're looking forward to um, this fall. So I, I mentioned that I teach in a gifted and talented, we call it the GATE program here. Um, inside Pine, Pine Middle School? Pine Middle School, yes. In the gifted and talented magnet inside of it. So I teach... Uh, this year, all the seventh and eighth grade English language arts classes. Um, I work with a wonderful colleague who teaches the sixth and some years the seventh. And so I, I sort of outlined, at least in writing, uh, in terms of teaching writing, what we do over a three-year period. It's a phenomenal job. Uh, I think I'm one of the last remaining happy teachers. Uh, and that's because I work with kids who come to school every day um, wanting to learn, um, happy to learn and appreciative for learning. So I always look forward to working with them. I look forward to um, working with my colleague, Joe Pizar, on uh, the We're Doing It Wrong uh, website and podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us on that. Um, that's and sort of where, an, where, can, where can people find that? Uh, you can go to www.weirdoingitwrong.com, and that'll give you access both to the content, uh, the blog content, which is just growing. Uh, and the podcasts, which are also growing rapidly. We have a long queue of guests. So this is an exciting outgrowth of the book where we really wanted to provide a space for um, mostly educators, but really anyone concerned with education to, we sort of, we want to amplify their voice is what we like to say. We appreciate your your work uh, as a teacher and a blogger and an, uh, an author, and uh, appreciate you being on the Getting Smart podcast. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. A big thanks to David for joining us. We appreciate his insights as an author and as a teacher of English. For more about his new book, see we're doing it wrong.com. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. And for more on reimagining K-12 learning, listen to season three, episode 18, What Schools Could Be, Ted Dintersmith on Powerful Learning. That's all we have for you today, but if you're hungry for more, head on over to gettingsmart.com for all things innovations and learning. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.